Every year for Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, Jackie Grossman writes on Facebook about her family's experiences in the Holocaust. Very few survived, and she is intent on making certain that all their stories live on. So thanks for joining me, Jackie. This is great. Glad to have you on. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm, I'm really actually honored and happy to be here and to talk about my family story. How extensive um, in your family tree, how, how much of that generation, those generations were in Europe in the 1930s and 40s? This is a really interesting question even to answer because until recently, I really actually had no idea how extensive my family was prior to the war. Uh, prior to the Holocaust, um, in my immediate family, both my parents were Holocaust survivors. They're no longer alive. And um, my mother's mother survived the war at, uh, along with her second husband, who she met in concentration camp, um, her first husband having been killed pretty early. And on my father's side, um, only he and one sister out of five siblings survived. Neither of his parents survived. Um, and the grandparent and his grandparents didn't survive. Um, and there are some, I believe there were some distant, distant cousins on his side who also survived, but I think they live in Israel and I'm not in touch with them. I don't have much of a connection with them, although I'd love to, <laughs> but, um, the very few of uh, my, my cousin, um, my one aunt who survived, her older daughter, who I'm very close to, um, she once told me that her mom, my aunt, told her that we had about 80 relatives who lived in the tiny village um, in Slovakia, which at the time it was Hungary. Now it's actually in Ukraine at the time, but it's so complicated, those borders. But um, there were about 80 relatives total who... The expression that gets used is they did not come back. There were about 80 relatives who did not come back, including grandparents, great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, great-aunts, etc. So really only survived, the only people who survived were my mother and my father who met after the war um, and one aunt. My mother had a brother who did not come back um, and my grandmother did come back. So my mother, grandmother father so was both sides of your your parents families was your mom's family and your dad's family both in the same village in no no okay. actually that no in fact they actually the truth is um and we we used to joke about this in our family all the time and how you could wind up making jokes about something like this but um my parents would never have been allowed even to marry one another if they had met you know, if the war had, they would never have met had the Holocaust never happened because my mother came from a very sort of upper middle class, very sophisticated, educated family. They lived in the city, quote unquote, and my father really lived in a tiny little shtetl, if you will, um, that was near a larger city, but he really lived in a small village and many of the family members lived in that village. There were only about 2,000 2,500 or so people altogether, and um, they would never have met. My grandmother, my mother's mother, who was, you know, a very 
elegant, sophisticated, um, highly educated woman, she would, I don't think she ever would have allowed my mother to marry, you know, uh, an, an, someone from, like my father who was un- who came from an uneducated, poor family. I think they just, the social classes just wouldn't have, mi- would not have mixed, but they met after the war. Um, it, it's a, it's, after the war, the Jewish agency was essentially going around Eastern Europe. I mean, I'm going to use a, a weird word here, but they were essentially like collecting orphans, finding Jewish orphans from around, you know, kids who had survived, young young people who had survived. And um, my father was, in fact, an orphan, uh, and my mother was not actually an orphan. But, you know, that's a whole other part of the story. But she wanted to get on this thing that was known as the Orphan's Transport, and my father was on it as well. And the orphans transport took um, several hundred orphaned Jewish teenagers from Eastern Europe to England after the war. There's actually a book written about this. Um, it's called The Boys. It was written by Sir Martin Gilbert. It describes the whole uh, experience of this group of several hundred children. There was a movie about it actually also on PBS a couple of years ago called The Windermere Children. That would that spoke about this this initiative of the Jewish agency to take uh, orphans, and they met. That's where my parents met. They met in living in the shelter in London uh, when they were, you know, fairly recent survivors. And they went to England, and there they were given, you know, uh, shelter, obviously, and they were also given some job training, and they were given, you know, English lessons, and they and they that was where they really met so many of the people in my life who turned out to be their lifelong friends who I always considered aunts and uncles because we didn't have aunts and uncles, right? So all these people that they knew from the shelter who came over to America with them um, are all the people that I consider like my substitute family, so to speak. So that's how they met. And uh, they came to this country in the early 1950s, my dad came first, and my mom followed shortly after, and they married in a little tiny shul on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. <laughs> so that's the that's how they got here. Okay, so let's let let's rewind a little bit to some of the more difficult things. They they were, um, mom was in the city, dad was in the country. This was. Eastern Ukraine, or, or what is now Eastern Ukraine? What was the uh, city? The city, my father was in a town called Seredna. I think it's actually in the West, honestly. Okay. It used to be, um, at, at various times, it was Hungary, it was Slovakia. Okay. Now it's in the Ukraine. You know, now it's in, not, they don't even say that Ukraine. Now it's in Ukraine. And um, my mother was from a town, a small city um, in Slovakia, known as Popolchani, and that was, it was more, more urban, like, you know, it was more sophisticated, there were, my grandmother was an opera singer on the Czech stage, I mean, they had, my grandfather was a high society photographer, he took studio portraits of wealthy families, Um, and yeah, so they just, they both, and they wound up you know, my father was really taken away. His, my father really was in concentration camp. He was in multiple concentration camps, um, and he was in on multiple in labor camps. And 
uh, performing slave labor and all of that. My mother was in a di slightly different situation because they did have um, a little bit of money, which enabled my grandmother to make arrangements for my mother to sort of live in hiding. Uh, my grandmother, my my grandfather, and my gra and my uncle, and my grandmother were all taken to concentration camp. But my mother was blonde haired, and um, you know she she didn't have blue eyes, but she she you know she could sort of pass, um, if you will. And um, my grandmother placed her in an orphanage at one point to keep her safe. And unfortunately, you know, that didn't turn out to be safe completely either. And there was a period where she was essentially living on the street, sort of just going from bus shelter to bus shelter to avoid, you know, bombings and things like that. She had at one point been rounded up by the soldiers and she was standing, she was about to be shot into the Danube and she was very quick-witted, my mother, and very quick-thinking. Um, and she basically distracted the guard who was, I guess, in charge of them, and she turned around and ran. This is a story I've actually heard from several people that I know whose parents tell a similar story. Um, but she really just, in a quick moment, managed to save her own life. Um, and so she was never in actual concentration camp. Whereas my father was uh, in multiple, and he was liber liberated from Dachau in April of 1945. So how did your mom know her mom was Ugh. still alive? This is a great story, Dan. This is a story I tell, I have told a lot. I've told the story a lot to, even to the students when I was a, a teacher and a principal. Um, so after the war, I think it's not really well known, but a lot of, you know, people were torn away from their homes and people's whole lives obviously were upended. And when people survived, they had no idea who lived and who died. Now, so for example, my mother knew that her father was gone because he had been taken away very, very early in the war, but she had no idea what had happened to her mother. And my mother went back to her hometown and my father went back to his hometown too. A common thing that people don't realize is that a lot of them, a lot of the survivors went back to their hometowns after the war just to see like, is there anybody, you know, is there anybody who lived? And my mother was living in the little town, you know, where she grew up. And, um, one Friday evening, she was, I guess, you know, I don't know. I don't know all the fine details but the story that was told to me is that one friday evening she was walking down the street and it was about to be the sabbath and she's walking down a street and she saw across the street a woman who looked very familiar and of course it had been it had been a long time since they had seen each other and my mother was you know a young adolescent still she was maybe 12 13 at the time um so she was going one way up the street, and this woman was coming down the other side of the street, the other direction, and they walked past each other, and um, they they each took about.
about 10 steps and sort of like when you would almost see it like in a movie, the way my mother used to describe it. At the same exact moment, they realized who the other person was and they turned around and uh, ran into the middle of the street to hug each other. They were obviously screaming and crying. They were overjoyed. My grandmother was holding a bag full of Shabbat groceries. She was going home to get ready for the Sabbath dinner. And all the groceries, my mother would tell me, you know, they all went like flying into the street and they all started like, you know, they had to, they were salvaging all the apples and everything that were all over the floor. But um, it's an amazing story. And that was how they kind of reconnected after the war. It was complete kismet. Like they, you know, and that's how many people, many survivors found their family members was just accident. And after the war, a lot of people literally would play the, geography game you know do you know so and so do you know so and so oh, you were in Maidanic did you know so and so you were in Auschwitz did you know so and so I mean that's how a lot of people found one another which is kind of unfathomable but in the case of my mother it was just sheer luck honestly so, yeah it was an incredible story and, so, um, so she was ahead. living on the street then when she was 8 or 9 10 11 yeah, she was pretty much. She was like sort of eating food out of garbage cans and, you know, um, she did. I mean, there's there's there is a story of which I do not have all the details about. She was placed at some point with there was some wealthy uncle who lived um, in another town far away and basically was, you know, uh, thought he was going to not, you know, ever be captured kind of thing. He was wealthy and. Uh, but he, she was supposed to go stay with him, and he was supposed to pick her up at the train station. And my, my grandmother put her on the train and said goodbye to her. And when she got to the train station, um, he wasn't there. He never came to get her because he, I guess, we don't know what happened. We don't know. My, my, my mother thinks that, you know, he just became afraid and decided not to. But, I mean, we, we really have no idea, you know, why he never showed up. Um, but at that point, my mother was sort of on her own. Um, and my, my grandmother at that point, you know, found an orphanage where she put her. And, you know, it w- she was there for a while. But I don't, to be honest with you, some of these details are, my mother did not like to talk about this. So a lot of this is just broad information as opposed to the details you know that was that's one thing that is i pieced together a lot more details than my parents actually gave me in a lot of cases because they did not like to talk about it sure like i can imagine yeah yeah they would talk they would talk with joyfully about life before the war you know my my mother would talk about you know, she was such a happy child and they were, you know, they had like animals and they lived in a big house and they had birthday parties and she had pretty dresses with bows in her hair and everything. But actually talking about the details of the, of what really happened to them, um, that I don't have a ton of details. I do believe it or not. I have a cassette, uh, that my dad recorded when one of my cousin's children was in school and needed to do like an oral history project. And so he recorded his story, but, um, I'll be honest, I haven't listened to the whole thing because, you know, it it gets to me too. You know, he, he survived tremendous brutality. Um, 
tremendous brutality and was basically skin and bones um, when he was liberated. I mean, if, if he weighed 80 pounds soaking wet, you know, he was, he was just, so he doesn't, he didn't, they didn't really like to talk about some of the physical things that happened to them. They did talk about the before times and they talked about after, and they even sometimes talked about, you know, their bravery or their resilience during the war, but the, the fine details of the physical torture they endured, I'm not really, I don't really have all those details. And I'm not 100% sure I want them all, you know. Um, you know, I know that my mother's brother was gassed, you know, at Maidonic. Like, I know certain things happened to certain people. But for them, they didn't, they, they always shielded us from the details, which I guess was part of the way they stayed resilient, <laughs> right? Like, they didn't, they didn't focus on it constantly. You know, the, the the severe trauma of that just has to be, uh, you know, a lifelong journey of healing. It's so interesting because we, and I think our generation, like, we would call it a lifelong journey of healing. And they, I think my mother and father would say there's no healing from this, so you have no choice. You just have to... There is no healing from something like this. You know, that that was their sort of you they would never be whole as as we would want them to be, right? They would never they like my mother would say, There's just no amount of therapy in all the world I could have ever done, you know, that would have that would have helped me, you know, whatever you know, forget this or or, you know, they everything they did they did on their own, which which is also amazing to me, you know. Um, and they just they made a decision sort of early on, you know, in their marriage, in their life together, that they were just going to get up every day and live and make the most of whatever time they had left on the planet because they felt obligated to live for those who didn't live. You know, they had, it's so complicated, Dan. I mean, they had, at the same, they lived and they had wonderful, wonderful lives, you know, after the war. Um, but they also had, as you might imagine, survivor's guilt, you know, like they got to live and their siblings didn't, you know, and they got to start a business and their siblings, did. they got to come to America, you know, and, and fulfill their American dream. And, but they always, always, always were in recognition of the fact that, you know, others didn't, many others didn't. So... Yeah. <laughs> so your parents are in London on their way to the US. Your mom's mom did she go also go to the US? So was that a separate track? So what happened was my grandmother um knew that her husband, my mother's father had already been murdered. Um, and my grandmother actually didn't get taken away to concentration camp till I don't want to say till close to the end, but she was sort of in the later, the later transports, I guess. So she already knew that my uncle and my, my grandfather were gone. Um, and while she was in concentration camp, she was there with one of her sisters, you know, in most cases, families were separated, but in some very 
I hate to use the word lucky, but in some lucky situations, you know, people were with a family member. Um, and my father was actually with, um, you know, his bro, one of his brothers, but my, my, my grandmother was with one of her sisters and they were on a death march. And, um, along the way on the death march, my, uh, my grandmother's sister collapsed and died and they were literally like on a road somewhere. I don't even really know all the details. And, um, a young man, um, stopped while my grandmother was, you know, obviously distraught and, and he helped to bury my great aunt, um, right there on the death march. And they said Kaddish for her, which is the Jewish prayer for the dead. And my grandmother and this young man uh, developed a bond. And somehow or other, were able to stay with each other through the rest of the horrible times. And when the war ended, they married. He was actually quite a bit younger than my grandmother. Um, they married. And when the war was over, they actually... Uh, well, first they went back to the town where my grandmother, you know, where my, that's where my mother and grandmother reunited. Um, and then eventually my mother obviously came, went to England and came to the United States. And my grandmother and her, her new husband went to uh, Palestine and were there, you know, they were there, um, you know, for the, for Israel independence and all of that. They were there in the late 1940s and they lived there until 1968 um, and then my mother after I was born my mother sort of convinced them to come and live in the United States to be around their grandchildren you know to you know to sort of make up for time right um, and so they came here my grandparents came here in 1968 and you know one of the stories I tell on the Facebook post is the fact that like I never even realized that this was not my actual grandfather. You know, th they kept us shielded from so much, you know. He was he was quite a bit younger than my grandmother, which when you're a child, you know, they, everybody looks older. So I had no idea. And um, he was quite a bit younger, and um, I called him grandpa. He was the only grandfather I ever knew, you know. I They were grandma and grandpa to me. And when I was about 18, I was kind of old to, to, to figure this out, to, to hear about this. But when I was 18, my mother was like, did you? Did it ever occur to you that I don't call him dad? I don't call, I don't refer to him as my father. And I said, no, it never really occurred to me. You know, I just kind of, I don't know. I guess I assume you get to adulthood and you stop calling your parents mom and dad. I don't know. I had no <laughs> strange ideas, right? So she then, that was when she finally told me the story. Like, up until that point, I was 18, or I was a senior in high school. I had no idea up until that point that he was not, you know, her father, that he was not biologically related to me, that I had no idea. Um, and he was actually, because he was so much younger, he was actually um, not too much older than my mother, like, relatively speaking, you know. And um, they had kind of a difficult relationship in the beginning because my mother was a teenager and she missed her father and she resented him because you know how how any teenager would resent the person who took their father's place you know but actually she um over the years she became extremely close to him they developed a very strong bond very strong friendship he outlived my grandmother and my mother really took care of him you know till the day he died and and um they had a tremendous love story my my 
my my grandmother and and he had a tremendous love story. They they never had children of their own. She was already in her forties when they married, and you know they just they just had a wonderful relationship, a wonderful love story, and you know I I I never considered him anything other than my grandfather. You know he was he doted on me like any grandfather would. And so they came to this country, like I said, they came in 1968. They lived just three, three or four blocks from us in the Bronx. And we saw them often, spent a lot of time with them. So he, um, one of the other things I write about in those Facebook posts is that um, he had no surviving family, none, or certainly at least none that we ever knew about. And, um, you know, when, he, when I'm gone, eventually, when my sister is gone, there will be nobody who will remember him. Like, he will be lost to history. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so uh, adamant about sharing his story and other stories because I just want somebody out there to remember him. But, you know, um, he was a great guy. He was a wonderful man. He was loving. He was kind. He was generous. And, you know, uh, I just always want someone to remember him. How do you weigh the importance of remembering the people who survived such a genocide with making sure people remember that the you know, the details of the genocide? Both things are so equally important in my mind. You know, we have to remember those who were lost and the horrible way in which they were lost and the reason that they were lost. And the, I mean, for me personally, I, I have a lot of, you know, feelings about, you know, the international community not helping the way it should have. And, you know, unfortunately we still see things like that today. We really haven't learned too much in my opinion from history. Um, you know, at the same time, I feel like it's incredibly important to remember to acknowledge those who did survive and the the I mean resilience is like such a it, it's not even a it's, it's not even like a deep enough word you know just the they were so strong they were so strong and they just um, their determination to like live life um, was you know, I, it's just was unmatched in my opinion. Like they just really, really wanted to make the most of every moment. It's so, in my mind, it's just so important to hear the stories from the survivors. It's important to know the stories of those who were murdered. Um, you know, there's, they're, they're just of equal importance. And I mean, I really feel, you know, I think probably, I mean, I don't have real actual numbers on this, but I'm going to say that within the next five to seven years, almost all the survivors, you know, who anyone who's alive now who's a survivor was super, super young at the time, you know, um, and they're going to be gone, you know, in the next five or so years, I would say, if not already. And um, while we have survivors still here, we need to hear the stories. And quite frankly, we, for those who are gone, I do really believe I really earnestly believe that it's my responsibility to share the stories so that future generations 
not just future generations of Jewish people, young Jewish people, but certainly even future generations, especially future generations of those who do not have a direct connection to it, uh, you know, really need to really need to know what ha- know what has happened, um, and really need to know the impact it has had. You know, I think that's the thing is that it could be so abstract, right? It's a historical event. It could be so abstract, but um, it's not abstract to me. You know, I, I, these are people I live every day of my life with. Um, there's no nothing abstract about it. It was it was real families that lost lives, lost property, lost multiple generations, lost roots, lost the possibility for further growth of the family. I mean, so I don't I don't know if that really answers your question, but it you know I I weigh it all equally because I think it's all equally important. And yet you, you know, you reference sort of the, the horrid details, but you go into depth on the stories and, and the admiration you have for your family members. I don't watch movies about the Holocaust. I don't read books about the Holocaust. I don't, people always, it's funny because people think like, oh, I'm reading an article about the Holocaust. Let me send it to Jackie. And I know people mean well. I know people mean well. Right? But they don't understand that for me, reading that is really, it's like, just, do you? Do I really want it? That's one of the reasons why I don't, haven't fully listened to my father's tape yet because I have to, I, I kind of have to know when I'm going to be ready to do that. You know, I only got it in my possession about a year ago. So, but, um, you know, for me, the, 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 you know, they were incredibly resilient, and they did have a lot of strength, and I do want to celebrate that, and I do want to honor and acknowledge that. But I also want to say that it came at a terrible price. I mean, you know, yes, I have these incredibly resilient parents, right? I had this incredible, incredibly strong family, but it came at a horrible price. I would much rather have had just, you know, I don't know, normal parents that didn't go through something like this, you know, like I would have much rather have had um, that they should, I would much rather have known my grandparents and great grandparents and ancestors, you know, and 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 countless aunts and uncles and great aunts and uncles. I would much rather have had that. You know, I got to tell you, you know, it, it's complicated for me, Dan. I was, I wouldn't be here if the Holocaust hadn't happened because my parents would never have met. And so, like, and I was born, my birthday is the same day as the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and which is a day, which is a, a day that, you know, the Jewish people are very proud of. It was a day of, you know, resistance. And Explain, um, explain what happened that day, please. Uh, I, I, you know, it, the, the, the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto revolted, essentially. I mean, unfortunately, it wasn't, you know, it didn't. You know, so many people characterize the Jews in the Holocaust as sort of like just going along with it. Like there's all this conversation about how could they let this happen? How could they just be taken to be slaughtered and, you know, unfortunately characterize Jews as being weak, which could not be further from the truth. And during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising on April 19th, um, they revolted. You know, they I mean, there was not much they could do. They were out armed, out everything. But the fact is that they... They tried, <laughs> and um, 
it's also April 19th was also my grandmother's birthday, so I share that day with her. So it's very symbolic to me, right? Because right. I wouldn't be born if I wouldn't have been born if, if the whole thing hadn't happened. But I guess I do probably place more emphasis on the story, the stories of survivorship and resilience, because that was what was emphasized to me. You know, they didn't. Like I said, I mean, they didn't really share a lot of the fine details of the torturous thing that happened to them because they didn't want me to have nightmares, right? They didn't want me to, you know, think about I, the thought of, of knowing that my father was beaten to within an inch of his life multiple times is terribly upsetting. Like, who wants to picture their beloved father that way, you know? It's much better for me and much easier for me to remember this, the, you know, the incredibly generous, loving person that he was and ambitious and successful and, you know, uh, always telling a joke and just like it, that is just what you want to, I think, focus on. Um, I will say this, and I, I really feel like it's important to say this too, like the fact that they were very resilient doesn't mean that they, that they didn't show constant signs of trauma which as a child I don't know that I recognized it as trauma I just thought my parents have some weird things going on you know but um as an adult now of course looking back especially now that they're gone I can see so much of the way the trauma impacted them and yet even through the trauma I still can see that I can see them sort of like pushing back against the trauma, if you will. Like, I think they knew they were traumatized. I think they knew they had, you know, they had bad, I know they had bad dreams. I know they, you know, I know they had strong emotions a lot. I know that a lot of things affected them. But, um, but I could also see almost every day that they were fighting against it, if, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, my mother, my sister and I joke still to this day, my mother like her favorite expression or one of her favorite expressions was pull yourself together. You know, <laughs> that's not, not like unique my, to your mom. I'm sorry. So it's not unique just to your mom. No, I know. I know. <laughs> Definitely not. But coming from her, you know, whenever she would say that we, you know, that was a lot for a little kid to hear because she could look what she pulled herself together from, you know, I mean, you know, um, and, and, like, we would have a bad day. We'd come home from school with a bad day, crying or, like, some whatever. I would have some typical teenage girl angsty thing going on, and she would just be like, pull yourself together. And as a kid, you know, I really resented it because I was like, you know, she doesn't understand what I'm going through and blah, blah, blah. Of course, now I understand that was really her coping mechanism was to pull herself together, you know, to slap on the lipstick and put on her earrings and, you know, and, like, pull herself together and, and, and muddle through. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't, I mean, not to go too far into this, but like really whenever something does happen to me, I have to say to myself, is this, you know, is this something that I should be this upset about or should I just pull myself together? You know, um, I, I hear that. I hear my mother saying it all the time. Um, and it really came clear to me, like, the start of the pandemic, I have to say, because, you know, so many people were like, you know, complaining about 
so many aspects of it. Oh, we have to stay home and we have to wear masks and we have to, you know, do all. And I, I just was thinking, my God, like we're getting to, I'm getting to sit home, watch Netflix, you know, and like work from home, which I never got to do before. And like people, for me, it was like, you know, this is nothing compared to what my parents went through. Everything, when you're the child of a survivor, and this is true, and I, I, read, a lo- I read this a lot in some of the survivor groups, child of survivor groups that I belong to, you know, every it, perspective is everything, right? Because no matter what we experienced, it could never be as bad as what our families went through. And so for a lot of us, it's really also a process of like, um, you know, like weighing and measuring what I'm going through right now, how, how traumatic is it? How bad is it? Um, and of course, you know, well, no, we're, still, we're still entitled to our emotions. We're still entitled to feel what we feel, but there's always, for a lot of us, there's always that, like, look at what your parents went through. Stop complaining kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, you can't possibly hold yourself to such, such a high standard. All the time, though. No, no. But, you, it's, <laughs> but I would say, but Dan, you know what? And that's the process that I've had to come to. That's not necessarily, you know, it seems logical, right? Oh, you can't possibly hold yourself to that kind of standard. But when you're raised to think that nothing, you know, I mean, look at my life compared to my parents' life, right? Like their life was, you know, there is no comparison, right? There is just no comparison. I was never starving. I didn't lose anybody close to me when I was a child. I wasn't living on the street. I wasn't, you know, to them, you know, you know, normal teenage girl angst is, is trivial, you know, um, and even, even more serious things are trivial, right? Which yeah. doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't mean that I don't allow myself to feel it. I certainly, believe me, you can ask my husband, I certainly allow myself to feel what I'm feeling, but it has been a process. Right. It's not I have always allowed myself to do. Um, and, you know, I think that is partly because of this sort of standard that they set, unrealistic standard, but standard that they set around, like, you know, pull yourself together, you know, and make it make your life better and do what you, you're unhappy, fix it. You know, if something's going wrong, make it better. Like, they didn't have this patience for, you know, like, wallowing in self-pity on any level um <laughs> at least at least out in the open but i do think you know privately in their own moments you know i will say this dan my mother towards the end of her life i did ask my mother um you know she was already very sick and i i i said to her you know i i, I have to know how you did it i have to know how did you live this life you know she was in the hospital and the rabbi was talking to her about her life. I guess he, you know, was getting close to the end. And she said to him, and she didn't know I was listening. I was sort of standing in the doorway. She said to him, you know, my beginning, our beginning was hard and our end has been hard, but in the middle, we had a wonderful life. And, um, I asked her after I heard her say that, I said, how did you have, you know, what I told, I, I went, I, went over to her and told her that I overheard what, you know, what she had said to the rabbi. And I said, how did you have a wonderful life after everything that happened to you? How did you do it? And she said, honestly, um, and this was an incredible moment of vulnerability for my mother who was made of steel. Um, she said, 
I cannot lie to you. She said my first thought every morning as soon as I would wake up was about my family that I missed and about the things that happened to me. And my last thought every night as I got into bed was also the same. Like every morning and every night, it's all that I thought about. She goes, but during the waking hours in between, I just put one foot in front of the other and I just kept going. I just, you know, I looked at you and I looked at your sister and I said, I have to, we have to make it better for them. She was determined for us to be well-educated people. They, they never spent a penny on themselves. They spent all their money on our education, you know, um, and that, you know, that was one of the last conversations I ever had with her before she died was that conversation. And I'm so grateful that I had that conversation because I, as a child, you don't necessarily see the, the human side of your parents, right? Like, they, they didn't cry in front of us. They weren't very emotive in that way. Those, you know, to know that it was so hard. For, it was hard for her. She never, she never claimed it wasn't hard for her, right? She just didn't outwardly show it, um, I guess, is how I perceive it. And I think my sister probably has slightly different perceptions of it. We, we've talked often about having different experiences being raised by them. She's older than me. They were different people when they had her than when they had me. They were closer to their war situation. They were less financially well off. There was a lot. They were newer immigrants. There was a lot that was different in the way we were raised. But, you know, I cherish that I had that conversation with her because it gave me an understanding, a more full understanding of her as a human being. And then circling back to the the broader question, how how can we as a society, you know, sort of figure out how to draw a line and and stop tolerating genocide? And I say this, you know, not just looking at, you know, what's going on with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the brutality that's happening there, but much of um the last much of our adult lives as you know like yeah. you you, yeah. Co- you come out of world war 2 and and you know I grew up in a, a Jewish neighborhood in different Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx and and there were a lot of survivors holocaust survivors and it was very much a never forget yeah um educational system and yet i can't even begin to count the number of genocides that have happened in my adult life it's it's abhorrent I- so I, I wish I had an answer for that. I, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that people learn. You'd like to think that human beings learn, right? You'd like to think that never forget really means never forget. But it doesn't. I mean, it just, in fact, I would have to say that witnessing the last few years in our country and certainly what's happening now in, you know, in Ukraine, um, I have a better I have a better understanding now of how it happened than I ever did. I used to sit there and wonder like how could the world just stand idly by and let this happen? I mean, surely people must have known what was going on and systematic killing of of not just Jews but other minorities as well and and you know um the world let it happen. United States let it happen. <laughs> you know, or or didn't do anything to actively stop it, I guess. And um 
I don't know. I wish I had an answer. I, I'm going to say the answer is education. I would be like really betraying my own line of work if I didn't say that. I do really believe the answer is education. The answer to so much of society's issues lies in education. But um, I, I mean, I'm at a loss as well. As, and that's why I do those Facebook posts every year. It's my one little contribution, you know, is, is like I just feel it's so important to educate people to know the impact. You know, we can all learn the historical detail. That's the thing. We can all learn the his. I could talk to you about the torture my parents went through, right? Those are the historical details. But really, what matters is the impact, right? Now it's multi-generational. I've been impacted by it. My niece has been impacted by it. You know, grandchildren have been impacted by it. You know, it's not just about the historical details. It's the, it's the stories attached to every one of those people. So I wish I, I wish I had the answer to that. I mean, on top of the fact that not only do we have genocides happening right now in our world, we have people who deny history. We have people who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. And in some circles, they're taken very seriously. I mean, I find it unfathomable, right? I mean, it's the irony is they don't even believe the historical details. They're not interested in the impact for sure, but they're not even willing to accept the historical details of it. So even as an educator, I have to say to you, you know, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how we can see what's going on right now in the same part of the world, the very same part of the world where my father came from. And, and this, it's just being allowed to happen. And I just, I know it's complicated. You know, people are like, oh, it's not that simple. I'm like, I don't know. To me, it's pretty simple. People are being killed. It's pretty simple. You try to stop them from being killed. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jackie. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Dan. I, I really am honored that you asked me to come do this. I do believe it's part of my mission much more so now than I did when my parents were alive. I definitely feel a much different urgency around it now than I did then. Um, but I feel like it's one of the best ways for me to honor their memory and not, you know, and, and to honor the memory of my 80 family members that I never got to meet and so many millions of others. So I really, really thank you for letting me do this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving, a series of interviews with people who survived all kinds of life-changing diseases and trauma. As we've heard, it's not always an easy thing to pull yourself together afterwards.